Hello and welcome to another edition of the Matt Adams Podcast, broadcasting live from Indianapolis, Indiana, on the southeast side. Now, people who know me probably know that the Sega Genesis is my favorite video game system of all time. It wasn't my first, but it's the one that I truly fell in love with in the 90s, and I still have my Sega Genesis, all of my games, my Sega CD, all of the games that came with that, and I can't say that about any other system that I've owned. I saw something this week that made me want to change what I was going to talk about, and that is the announcement from Sega that they're going to bring a Sega Genesis Classics compilation to Xbox One, PlayStation 4, and Steam, and it's going to come out here in May. I want to talk about my personal history of gaming. The first system we ever had was the Intellivision. It was a system that was launched by Mattel in the late 70s, and I'll tell you, when I would tell people at school that we had an Intellivision, they would look at you like you had three eyes, because they'd never heard of it. A lot of people did not have Intellivisions. Most people had Atari. We played it a lot. My mother especially loved Burger Time. She would jerk the controller to the left and right while controlling the main character as if that would actually make any type of difference in the game as to how he would perform. But she would kind of yell and scream as she tried to avoid the different characters. You know, the, the pickles and the egg and the sausages that were trying to get the chef. It was hilarious to watch. I even remember it because this would have been when I was really young. And I still remember her just having so much fun doing that. My grandmother also had an Intellivision. Although I believe if family history is not apocryphal that... My grandmother's doctor made her give it up because it was affecting her blood pressure. So the Intellivision was really big in my family, and they sold a fair amount of Intellivision systems. It's just when I was in school, and maybe these kids had Ataris, or they had Nintendos, and we had our Intellivision they're like, what is that? What's this fake video game system that clearly you don't have? The thing about the Intellivision is, from a technological standpoint, it was more powerful than the Atari. And so it had better graphics. It looked better. They could do more with their graphics on that system, which probably is best known for these unique controllers. They were rectangular, and at the bottom, you had a disc, and that was what controlled your movement. So you'd slide your thumb along the disc. You know, if you need to go up, you'd hit up. If down, you'd hit down, left, right. The intermediate, you know, upper left, upper right, lower left, lower right. And that was how you controlled your characters. Then it had two buttons on either side of the controller. And those were usually fire or action buttons. While those features were certainly unique, the other unique feature was the keypad. It had a numeric keypad, just like a telephone. And those different buttons would be used for various functions during a game. And each game came with plastic overlays. And so you would slide those down over the keypad, and then that would tell you what different functions the keypad buttons did 
when you press them. The one I remember the most, or the one that's easiest to kind of explain, is if you were playing baseball. The keypad, basically, the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, all corresponded to a position on the baseball field. So, like, 1, 2, and 3 represented your outfielders. So, if you need to control an outfielder, you press 1 for left field, 2 for center field, 3 for right field. And it was pretty intuitive. It made sense to people who love baseball and sports that you would have these numbers that would correspond to positions. So if you were the pitcher and you threw the ball to the batter and hit it out into left field, you'd press one. That would allow you to control your left fielder. And then you'd take control of him and try to, you know, catch the fly ball or track down the line drive and throw it into the infield. We had a fair number of games for the Intellivision, some that I remember the most, in no particular order, just these are the ones that came to mind, Slam Dunk Super Pro Basketball, which was a three-on-three basketball game. At the beginning of each game, you could pick your salary cap, and I think it ranged from like a million to five million dollars or something along those lines, and you had money to spend to buy players. The more expensive players had higher salaries, And so you could only have a couple of those players, and then you'd have to fill your team with guys that weren't great. They all had goofy names. There was Steve Cousy, who was, I'm not sure if he was the most expensive, but he was definitely one of the most expensive. Basically, he was sort of a Bob Cousy-Steve Alford hybrid is how we always thought of them, although I think the game may have been made before Steve Alford was a thing. He shot well from the outside. He was a good free throw shooter. You could score 30 points, 40 points with that guy pretty easily during the game. There was Professor Q, who was kind of who was a Dr. J clone, but with the name Professor Q, I always just kind of thought of this goofy-looking white guy with a mustache and glasses. But he he was pretty good too. More of an inside dunk type player. A couple others, Hacker Thomas, Beanpole Bowen, Slammer Smith, just all kinds of different goofy name guys. They all had different skills. So Hacker Thomas was foul prone. Duh. Slammer Smith was really good at dunks, but couldn't shoot jump shots very well. Beanpole Bowen was good close to the basket, couldn't hit a three-pointer to save his life, and was really reliable for rebounding. Offensive and defensive. I also remember a player named Maurice Mendoza, who was an okay shooter, but he was fantastic at free throws. And I think one time, it was really easy, criminally easy, to draw fouls in that game. You would just sort of run your player into one of the other defenders for a few seconds, and then they'd whistle the guy for a foul. So we put Maurice Mendoza up at the free throw line several times one game, And I think he hit like 45 out of 45 free throws. That's pretty crazy. We also played a fair amount of Super Pro Football, which was the Intellivision's football game. I think it was NFL licensed, or maybe it was just the original version that was NFL licensed. They didn't have any real players or anything. You just had the red team versus the blue team, which is what you usually had in Intellivision sports games. I remember it being really hard to move the football in that game. Maybe it was because I was young and I didn't necessarily understand things all that well. I wasn't very good at super pro football. 
I mentioned baseball. There were a couple of different baseball games, and, and basically they were variations of the same game. The first one was like Major League Baseball. That's the one I was talking about with the keypad and the overlay and the different spots on the field corresponding to different keys. One of the action buttons allowed you to swing, and the other allowed you to bunt. It was simple, but fun. Now, there was a variation of that game, I guess a sequel, that was called World Championship Baseball, and it added a few additional things to it. The basic gameplay was the same. The field looked a little bit different. The big addition for that one is I remember that you could your, your players could slide, whereas they couldn't in the other game. If you were trying to leg out a single, if you hit the slide button, your player would get this little burst of speed to run through the baseline and try to beat the throw. And then that same button, when you were going to second, third, or home plate, would allow your player to slide. It kicked up a little bit of dirt. We probably played that one more than anything. Even had some really bad digitized voice, which sounds like an umpire having indigestion out on the field. Another great game for the Intellivision was Night Stalker. Just listen to the soundtrack that you had to endure if you were playing that game. It was super tense. You played a guy who has this bunker in this maze. And on this maze, uh, there's a spider and a spider web. There are bats and there are robots. When you start out, you're in the bunker a yellow gun appears on the screen, and you have to go get it. Sometimes it'll appear right above you. Sometimes it'll appear in one corner of the screen. Sometimes it'll appear at the top. But you've got to go get that, and then that gives you six shots. And so the goal, obviously, is just to score points, shoot the bats, shoot the spider, particularly shoot the robot. The robot's worth the most points, and after you shoot the robot, it regenerates down at the bottom left of the screen. Pretty much for the first few rounds, I don't know the exact number, you shoot this gray robot over and over and over and over again. And then eventually the gray robot turns into a bluish robot that can shoot multiple shots at you at the same time. And of course, once you've shot, or once you've used your six shots, the gun would rematerialize somewhere on the screen and you'd have to go and get it. Other progressions for the robot, after you'd shoot the blue robot a couple of times, there would be like this kind of white robot that always reminded me of a snowman for some reason, but he had a shield on him. So you had to hit him two or three times before you could kill that robot. And you liked your bunker because you could go in there and hide. That was the only safe spot on the whole map. The problem with hiding in the bunker is then all the bad guys, the bats and the robots, they, they would hover around that area because they know if you're in the bunker at some point, you've got to come out and they're going to shoot you. If you ran into the bats or the spiders, they stunned you temporarily, which seemed to happen at the most inconvenient time when you're trying to get the gun or you're trying to get out of the way of a gunshot. It seemed like they would always get you and stun you and then you'd get shot. And later in the game, after you've destroyed a fair amount of robots, when you shot a bat, instead of regenerating as a bat, the bats would come back as gray robots that could shoot. So you would have three robots out on the map at the same time. And we got fairly far 
in Night Stalker. We could get past the S.H.I.E.L.D. robot, but then I don't know if it was the last robot or, or how the game progressed or if it went on infinitely, but eventually a robot would come out who could destroy your bunker. So if you sought refuge in the bunker, then the robot would hover around and shoot into it and pieces of your bunker would disappear. So basically you didn't have any place to hide anymore and it didn't take you too long to die after that robot appeared. It was tense, but it was a fun game. Another one that we really liked was Astro Smash. Very simple concept. Asteroids would fall from the sky and you controlled this little modular gun across the that would slide across the button of the screen. You would just shoot the asteroids out of the air. And the big asteroids split into a couple asteroids after you shot them, and then you have to shoot those asteroids. You weren't really penalized if the asteroids hit the ground, like it didn't cause you damage or anything like that, but it would take points away. So if you let some asteroids fall, it wasn't the end of the world, but it did reduce your point total, and that was supposed to be the incentive for getting them. And then at certain points in a level, as you progressed they would send, like, an alien ship. It could home in on you and destroy you if it hit you, and then it was hard to shoot out of the sky. So, usually, when I died in Astro Smash, it was because of that stupid little probe that would come down. You just, it was sort of zigzag, it's hard to hit, and then it would hit you and blow you up. Astro Smash games tended to last a long time because all you did would shoot asteroids, and you'd watch your score go up, and as your score went up, you would earn more of more lives. And you would build up a lot of lives as you got toward the later levels. So, very simple game, very easy, and we really loved Astro Smash. We also liked Frogger a lot. The Intellivision port of Frogger was pretty good. We played that a fair bit, I remember. So, the Intellivision was... Really, the first video game system that we had, first one I remember, we sold it at a yard sale, $120 or something, because we had quite a few games. I mean, we had Bowling and Astro Smash and Star Strike was another one. We had a Donkey Kong port. There was He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, which was a lot of fun. And we said goodbye to the Intellivision, which at the time was fine. But I think in retrospect, we kind of miss the Intellivision, just because it was really a neat system, unlike a lot of any others out there, and it had so many good games. The nice thing is, people haven't completely forgotten the Intellivision over the years, because there was an Intellivision Lives compilation for the PlayStation, and that took some of those popular games, none of the licensed ones, you know, no He-Man or Donkey Kong or anything like that. Things like baseball and football and basketball that were first-party titles for the system would come out in a compilation. And then there's also an Intellivision flashback system, which my brother bought for me for Christmas a few years ago, and that's been a lot of fun to play with because it's got all the games, and the, the replica controllers are dead on, even though the system's smaller than the real one. The controllers are dead on, and it came with reproductions of the little plastic covers or the little plastic overlays that came with each game. So it was a really neat little system to kind of 
go back and play some of those games. And they don't have achievements or online support or anything like that. But they're a lot of fun when gaming was just gaming. After the Intellivision, we had the Nintendo Entertainment System, known as the NES. And if you're in Europe, apparently people call it the NES. That's one of those things. I've just, I watch a fair amount of video game YouTube videos. And when people from overseas are talking about some of these systems I grew up with, there's just these little variations to it. The NES, or the Nintendo as we would call it here, was often called the NES overseas. And the Super Nintendo, which we called the SNES, or the Super Nintendo, a lot of people overseas called it the SNES. And it's so weird to me to think that that's what people refer to it as, but that's what they called it over there. And then, of course, in Japan, it wasn't the NES, it was the Famicom, and it wasn't the Super NES, it was the Super Famicom. But the NES was a fantastic system. I don't know why I don't have the amount of affection for the NES that I have for the Sega Genesis, but I, I like the NES, and I loved a lot of the games for it. I had a pretty basic package with it. It came with the controllers the Zapper, and Super Mario Duck Hunt. Duck Hunt, kind of fun for a few minutes, but Super Mario Brothers, I played that over and over and over again. Now you'll notice when I talk about games for these systems, I'll talk a lot about sports games, and a lot of people play video games for arcade games and shooters. While I, I do like some of those games, and I, I do like a lot of platformers, Sports games, having good sports games is really important to me, and it's always been important to my brother as well. One of my best-remembered sports games was Bases Loaded 2, and I love the opening theme song. It was a pretty simple baseball game. The first Bases Loaded was pretty popular for the system. I remember reading Nintendo Power about that game and how it was a little different from Bases Loaded 2. I never played Bases Loaded 1. We started with Bases Loaded 2, second season. In Bases Loaded 1, if you beamed the batter, then sometimes he'd charge the mound, and they took that out of Bases Loaded 2. It was really neat. I liked the graphics. I mean, the Intellivision graphics were better than Atari's when it came to the baseball game, but the Nintendo and the Bases Loaded game blew them away. You had what looked like a TV angle behind the pitching mound, and I really enjoyed Bases Loaded 2 and playing through a season in that game. And what was neat was they had what they called biorhythms for your players. So your players would, based on performance and I'm sure probably some random factors as well, but your, your players would get on hot streaks and cold streaks. And sometimes you'd get a player whose biorhythms would get really high and you would, you would view these in between games. And then the next game when you had that player, suddenly, you know, everything he's hitting is a long ball. He's getting on base a lot. And then if you had a player who had really low biorhythms, seems like he's hitting pop-ups or ground balls right to the shortstop, and it, it had an effect on your player and then also your strategy because you know if you looked at your biorhythms in between games and you had a player in a late game situation and you knew that his biorhythms were low and you knew that he wasn't going to get a hit or had a low chance of it, then maybe you would pinch hit for him that that guy was on a cold streak. And yeah, the guys will eventually snap out of their cold streaks if you needed a hit Maybe a, another player is better for that. 
I made it to the end of Super Mario Brothers. I mean, I think everybody did, whether they did it through cheating through the warp zones or just completing it the usual way. But I loved Bionic Commando, and it's the first game that I really felt like was a challenge that I actually beat. Just something, I, I like the main title theme. I like the fact, even though it's weird that your character can't jump, I love the fact that he has that bionic arm that he can use to attach to the ceiling and swing across, and you just get really, you really get good at it and know how to get across the different obstacles and use that arm to your advantage. I remember there was, I think it was only one, there may have been a couple, but there were a couple of zones that were supposed to be neutral, and so you were supposed to progress through the level without firing a shot, and if you decided to fire a shot or attack somebody, then the screen would fill up with bad guys. And the last guy, I forget what he's called, but, I mean, you look at it, and it's Hitler. It, it definitely is. But that doesn't diminish from the fact that it's a great game. Just really fun. Of course, if you're talking about the late 80s and early 90s, you're going to have the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. We had TMNT 2, the arcade game which was the Nintendo port of the very popular Konami four-player cabinet game that I absolutely loved. And I remember getting that game, and you hope that it's going to be just like the one in the arcade. And while it's an excellent port when you're a little kid, you're a little disappointed because you don't realize, you know, they can't do certain things that an arcade game can do. But really, it was a great port. Probably the only drawback of it was... It was only a two-player game. You couldn't play as all four turtles. It was cool because it had all the original levels in it. They were a little bit different, you know, due to graphical capabilities and stuff. Although the music was pretty close to the arcade, if I recall. And they had on a couple of new levels to it. So you had an exclusive level, two exclusive levels, in that game that weren't in the arcade. So it gave you a little bit of incentive to play that. And it wasn't just a rushed port of an arcade game that the Nintendo couldn't quite emulate that well. If you look at it now, you see how well that game was crafted. They did a great job with the graphics and the music and the gameplay is solid. It just, the Nintendo has its limitations. It's not an arcade system. It's not an arcade board. So there are certain things it can't do. It can't display a great number of characters as the arcade game could. And it can't do as flashy of graphics. It's a really good port. Talk about another sports game, and that's play-action football. A lot of people hate play-action football and think it's a terrible game. Now, my brother and I really liked play-action football. It was weird. It was an overhead view that was sort of three-quarters, and the gameplay is kind of slow, but it's neat because it used real players, and that's where I learned a lot of my football team names and guys that I wouldn't have known before. You're Tom Rathmans, and they all had energy meters. So if you ran your running back too much, then his energy meter would go way down. He would be prone to not pick up much yardage on a play, or he would be more prone to fumble. If you had a receiver who was tired, then he had a greater chance of dropping the ball. Was it the best football game on the Nintendo? I think inarguably... It was not. That honor probably goes to Tecmo Bowl and Super Tecmo Bowl, but we had play-action football. We didn't have Tecmo Bowl, so that's what we played. And it was a lot better than 10-yard fight or John Elway's quarterback. I don't think the NES had a great basketball game. Double dribble's probably the one that most comes to mind. We didn't have that one. 
It had four teams and some really cool graphics when you went in for like a dunk. We had Magic Johnson's Fast Break, which was this two-on-two basketball game that I absolutely loathed. I didn't find it to be all that much fun. And, you know, after you'd score a bucket, then the screen would turn gray and you'd see this digitized face of Magic Johnson. He'd be like, great shot or good job. It was really hokey. Two-on-two basketball, not a lot of fun in my opinion. Of course, if you've listened to the podcast a few episodes, you know I'm a big Star Wars fan. We had the side-scrolling Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back games. They were super hard. I never got to the end of the Star Wars game. I got to the Death Star, the Death Star side-scrolling level, but I don't think I ever got off the Death Star because it was just, it, it was this huge maze and it was easy to get lost and then you'd lose your lives and then you didn't have any more characters and then you were done. Empire Strikes Back, I did beat. I only beat it one time. I didn't use cheat codes, but it was a hard game. It was great though. It had some really good digitized voice and digitized music from the movies. I did make it to the end of The Empire Strikes Back and I did beat Darth Vader, but I only did it once. Probably would never be able to do it again. That was when I was younger and my gaming reflexes were at their peak, and I did make it, and it was pretty cool. I did like replaying that game. Pretty much every Star Wars game has some sort of Battle of Hoth level, whether you're talking about Rogue Squadron, or Super Empire Strikes Back, or Rebel Assault, or even Atari games, Shadows of the Empire, the Battlefront games. Everybody has some version of the Battle of Hoth, and I thought the version that they had in... The Empire Strikes Back game on Nintendo was really a lot of fun. Really, they had big sprites for the walkers, and you could defeat them in a couple of different ways. You could use your cannons, which took forever, or you could use your harpoons and tow cables, just like the movie. You only had a limited number of those, however. And then if your snowspeeder got blown up, which could happen, then you would run around the level as Luke Skywalker and take the Adat Walkers out one by one by jumping underneath them. Then this animation would play where Luke would launch this line up to the belly of the Adat Walker, zip up, and then take out his lightsaber, slash it, throw in a bomb, and blow up the Adat Walker that way. Which he, he did in the movie, it's just he only did that one time in the movie to take down an Adat Walker. But in this level, if you let your snowspeeder get blown up, you could do that all the time. And then eventually another snowspeeder would show up and could jump in it. But it was kind of fun to go through the level and just take them down one by one as Luke Skywalker with his lightsaber. And of course it didn't matter how many Adat Walkers you destroyed. The Empire would always reach the shield generator and blow it up. And things would progress like they did in the movie. I can say that I loved the first Legend of Zelda. It was really fun. And then after you beat the first time you get the overworld that's a little bit different. And everything's a little bit more difficult. And so I had a lot of fun with Zelda, and I did make it to the end of that one as well. The NES had a great port of Tetris, and if you've ever read about the rights to Tetris, it's uh, it's quite the thing. I'm not going to recap it here, but 
basically a few different companies thought they had bought the rights to Tetris and started releasing them on home consoles, except they didn't exactly finalize the deal, and was the deal with the guy who made Tetris, or was it with his office, or was it with the Russian government? It, it was this whole thing. There's a few videos on the internet. I'll, I'll put one of them in the a link in the description, because it pretty it is fascinating. Nintendo got a great version of Tetris, and it's one that I'll still play today. Now, I don't really have my Nintendo anymore, as I said, and I don't have my Intellivision, but I do have, uh, basically, it's a knockoff Raspberry Pi. It's an orange pie system that plays, you know, your Sega games and Nintendo and Intellivision, and if I want to play a version of Tetris, I'm always going to go back to the Nintendo version, because it's just really good. And, of course, the Game Boy version of Tetris is also very famous, and it's all part of this thing with the licensing deal with Tetris and how that all came to be. Punch-Out! was a lot of fun. Really liked that game. We didn't have Mike Tyson's Punch-Out! By the time we got Punch-Out, it was the one with Mr. Dream. Same game, the palette swap for the guy at the end of the game. Always liked the music. Glass Joe, easy to beat. I didn't know how to beat King Hippo and I didn't consult any guidebooks, and there was no internet to consult back then. So when I figured out how to beat King Hippo, because I would go through the game, and I'd progress, and I'd beat all these guys, and I'd get to King Hippo, and the game would end. When I finally figured out how to beat him, it was really cool. And then you're like, this guy's so easy. You punch him here, and then you just keep punching him until you knock him down, and then he's done. One of the easiest characters in the game, but until you figure out how you're supposed to hit him, he seems impossible to beat, and that game's all about timing and watching the patterns, and I've gotten to Mr. Dream, I've not beaten Mr. Dream, which means I've not beaten Mike Tyson, you know, it's a, it's a classic, it's a game I always enjoy. I was really disappointed in the Burger Time port for the Nintendo, I remember that, it the graphics were better, obviously, than the Intellivision version, but they screwed up some of the timing for the levels. In one level in particular, they send a couple extra eggs out into the level, and there's it, it feels like, anyway, there's no way to start that level without using a pepper or you know losing a life right away. Changes your whole strategy. And for me, the most important thing if you're playing Burger Time is if you can get through those first three levels without using much pepper, then you might be okay in the next three levels. The biggest problem I have with that last level is that I haven't played it as much as the others because it takes a while to get there. When I do get there, I don't usually have much pepper left. And this level, the, the last level before it resets, does not have a lot of escape avenues. And if you do have escape avenues... I'm not using them the right way. End up in a lot of dead ends on that level. And I never have enough peppers to stun opponents. I mean, you, you can get them on a bun and drop them down several levels. But then when you get back into the ladders of the level, then you've got all the other characters, all the other enemies that are running around. And there's no real escape route. I really don't like that level. But that has nothing to do with the NES version. That's just Burger Time in general. But I do remember being disappointed with the Burger Time port because we were really excited. We got the Nintendo. We said, oh my gosh, they've got Burger Time. We love Burger Time. And then we played that version and it was just a disappointment to us. They had a couple of good hockey games for the Nintendo. I'm not big a big hockey fan, but I do like hockey video games. I always have. Blades of Steel's good. And then a little bit different variation is the Nintendo Ice Hockey, which Blades of Steel is more of a traditional hockey game. And Ice Hockey's 
interesting because when you, you pick your team, there's, there's like three different player types. There's like the little fast guys that are easy to knock down. There's the medium guys who can be knocked down but aren't as fast but can also knock you down. And then there's the big bruiser guys who are almost impossible to knock over, but they're really, really slow. And I, I did have a wrestling phase in the late 80s, early 90s, where I really liked WWF, and it was WWF at that point before it became WWE. There weren't really any great WWF games for the Nintendo. I had scads of them. The one that I remember the most was WWF Steel Cage Challenge, and that's because it had what was my favorite character at the time, the heel wrestler, the Mountie, and I really only liked that game because the Mountie was in it and it had his theme song. After the Nintendo, I'd had it for a while, but we decided to, to sell it. We took all of our games, we put a classified ad in the local hometown paper, the Palladium item. Somebody called, and we sold our Nintendo, and then I used that to buy the Sega Genesis. And the entire reason I'm talking about video games in this episode of the podcast is because Sega's putting out a compilation for the Xbox One, PS4, and Steam. It's going to include 50 Sega Genesis games, and it's the Genesis to me. If you're overseas, it's the Mega Drive. People will look at you like, what? If you call it the Genesis, well, they'll know you're from the U.S. because in most other territories, the Sega Genesis was known as the Mega Drive. They didn't want to call it that over here. And there might have been, there might have actually been a rights issue with calling it the Mega Drive here. And that's why they had to change the name. But your European and your Japanese gamers know that as the Sega Mega Drive. And the Sega CD is the Mega Drive CD or the Mega CD. It's just one of those kind of bizarro world things. I mean, as a kid, you know, the internet didn't exist. You didn't have a lot of contact with people outside the U.S. sphere of influence or outside even your city or your state. And so I, I didn't know the Mega Drive was a thing until later. And then you find out that, you know, 75% of the world calls this thing that you've always loved as the Sega Genesis. They call it the Sega Mega Drive and it just kind of blows your mind a little bit. And of all of the systems that I've owned, and I've I had a fair amount, I mean, I've already talked about two of them, and this is the third one I'm talking about. The one I've probably played the most and loved the most was the Sega Genesis. Yes, if you grew up in the 90s, it was the big playground debate, Super Nintendo or Sega Genesis. Plenty of my friends had Super Nintendos, plenty of my friends had Sega Genesis. I was a Genesis guy, and I bought into the whole bit, the... the Blast processing and the Sega CD, and I, I would have bought a 32X. I was so close to buying a 32X. I was all in on the Sega Genesis brand. The sports games were better. The games played faster. I just loved the Sega Genesis. I loved the way it looked, the sleek black box. I had the Model 1. I loved everything about that system. And, and one thing I liked about Sega, I think, was... Some of their policies compared to Nintendo felt more consumer-friendly. Sure, yeah, they, they packed in Duck Hunt and, and Mario Brothers with Nintendo. But when I bought my Sega Genesis, it came with Sonic the Hedgehog, the first game. Excellent game. At that time, Sonic the Hedgehog 2 
was also coming out. And if you bought the system and mailed in your receipt and a proof of purchase, Sega mailed you a copy of Sonic the Hedgehog 2. So, boom, right away you had two games to play. Yeah, they were Sonic games, and Sonic games always have a certain amount of similarity, but they were really good games. I mean, Sonic the Hedgehog 2 is probably my favorite, or it is my favorite Sonic game. I love the music. I love the introduction of the Spin Dash and the Chemical Plant Zone. I mean, just take a listen to this. Some of the great games for the Genesis, you know, we'll, we'll talk about sports games first here. Hardball 94, which was a port of a really popular series of computer games from Accolade, I believe. Had a battery backup, battery save on it. You could design your own sports logos. You could rename players and mess with stats and play through a whole season. And we, we loved Hardball. NBA Jam. My goodness, why haven't they made a new retro version of NBA Jam? I mean, there there have been some versions over the past couple of years, but nothing has really approached the original or the tournament edition. And I loved NBA Jam and NBA Jam Tournament Edition so much. Always played as the Pacers and Reggie Miller. Love that game and all the announcer quips. It's just fun. And the great thing about NBA Jam is that, well, yeah, it's a basketball game and it's officially licensed by the NBA and all that, and you've got the real players, anybody can pick up NBA Jam and have fun with it because it's just pure arcade fun. The, the dunks are huge. Guys get on fire. It's so awesome. And the tournament edition was just more of the same. It gave you some more player selections, some different character. They, they shook up the roster a little bit, and then there were more players per team so you could kind of choose more players that you'd like to play as they added hot spots into the game so if you wanted to have like a spot in the court that you could shoot from that was worth seven points you could have that we and that being my brother and i had our fair amount of versions of madden football i think we had madden 96 madden 97 and madden 98 which I think was the last Madden game that was released for the Genesis. I'd have to double check. I don't think there was a Madden 99. The football game that we loved for the Sega Genesis was NFL Football 94 starring Joe Montana. And it was a sports talk game, which means you got this announcer that provided commentary for the entire game. Sometimes he kept up. Sometimes he did Welcome to the game between the Washington Redskins and the Kansas City Chiefs. It's a beautiful day here in Kansas City. The Redskins line up for the kickoff. It's on its way. Take it at the 2. To the 10. 23. And sort of the weird thing about this particular game was that Joe Montana was on the cover, and by this time, Joe Montana had been traded to the Chiefs, which blew everybody's mind because you thought if anybody was going to retire with his team, it would be Joe Montana with the 49ers, but he played a few years with the Chiefs, and he was the cover athlete for this game, as he had been for some other Sega football games, and the one thing that was kind of neat, just a little thing, if you're a football fan or if you're a sports fan, is that if you played with the Chiefs 
and you had Joe Montana, a lot of times the announcer would say, the quarterback comes out in the shotgun. But when you played as Montana, he would single Montana out like this. Montana in the shotgun. The pass. Overthrown. Just a little thing, but it was a nice touch. In terms of basketball, we had several different games. I think the NBA Live series was the best. I mean, it was sort of the progression of the Bulls versus Blazers in the NBA playoff series, but finally you had all the NBA teams that you could play with and you could edit rosters. Loved playing as the Pacers, loved playing as Reggie Miller and raining threes down upon the opponent. We had a couple other basketball games too. NBA Action 95, that was a Sega sports game. Really not a great game, but it had an overhead view, big character sprites, and customizable rosters, which was a lot of fun. Reggie Miller was a streak shooter, and they had streak shooters in this game. So if you hit a couple three-pointers as Reggie Miller, he would get hot. Not quite on fire like an NBA jam, but he would get hot, and then you could hit several three-pointers in a row. Conversely, if you played as Reggie Miller and you shot three-pointers and missed them, he would get cold and couldn't hit the broadside of a barn. But I think Reggie will tell you that he was a street shooter and he expected the ball to go in every time he hoisted it up, but it didn't always go in. And sometimes you just have an off night. It was a, it was a decent basketball game, but I think we preferred the NBA Live series. And I, I mentioned hockey games during the Nintendo we didn't have a hockey game for the Intellivision, but we had a couple, or had played a couple for the Nintendo. For the Genesis, you got the best hockey game, hockey 16-bit game of all time, NHL 94. When usually people, when they talk about NHL 94 being great, they're referring to the Sega Genesis version. And it is great. I've played it. But the version that I had was NHL 94 for the Sega CD. When you had a Sega CD version of a regular game, that meant certain things. CD quality, digital sound, some sort of video component with its horribly compressed, terrible looking video. And it also meant a little bit of commentary. So at this point, EA Sports was a thing. They knew they made good sports games. And they had a guy named Ron Barr, and he was their quote-unquote announcer. His face would appear in some of the other games, but in NHL 94, before the game started, he broke down position by position which team had which player and give history about the goalie or the center or the defenseman and talk about the, the franchises and how they started and if they'd had championships and stuff before. And the first few times you play that, you're like, wow, this is really cool because this is, this is the 90s here. Kirk McLean is an outstanding goalie as he provides the Vancouver Canucks with an imposing fortress in the nets. McLean stands up to any shooter and limits high percentage scoring chances by working his angles well. Most console gamers weren't PC gamers. They didn't know that things like this existed, really, and it blew you away. The sound blew you away. The fact it had video blew you away, and that it had this audio commentary also blew you away. And then eventually you realize that the pregame analysis is all the same for the teams each time that you play, so you're going to hear the same thing about Kirk McLean of the Vancouver Canucks, as you've heard about him before. So you, you start skipping past those. Although every once in a while, even if you've heard them before, you kind of like that reassuring voice of Ron Barr giving you the, the matchup. But NHL 94 was an awesome game. Played great. Sounded great on the Sega CD because all the organ music was authentic. It took all those familiar themes and it made them even 
better. It made them grander. Now, my brother and I, I did go through a little bit of a hockey phase in the mid-90s. And I loved the St. Louis Blues, and I loved Brett Hall. And so my brother and I usually played as the St. Louis Blues. And they had Craig Janney, Brendan Shanahan, and Brett Hall, I think, were their, their three main guys at that time on that game. And Curtis Joseph was the goalie. Their defensemen were crap. We would play through that game, play through the Stanley Cup playoffs, and, and win the thing as the Blues all the time. And I love scoring goals with Brett Hall. And versions of NHL came out, NHL 95, 96, 97, 98. I had NHL 96, which I also enjoyed playing. It played just a little bit faster than NHL 94. Uh, the, the season mode was cool, and you could do custom players, so you could put your friends on your team. No commentary, no CD quality music or anything like that, but NHL 96 was a really good version of that game as well, and added some deke moves and some spins and stuff like that, things that you couldn't do on NHL 94, so I played a fair amount of NHL 96 as well. And I, I talk about sports games because that's one of the dividing lines in the war between Super Nintendo and the Sega Genesis. Sports games on the Genesis were, without a doubt, always going to be better. Now, they figured it out later in the life cycle of the Super Nintendo. SNES games just didn't play as fast. They didn't play as sharply. The controls didn't seem as tight as they did on the Genesis. I think since the Genesis was a little bit older of the system, I think programmers knew how to take advantage of the hardware for that system. And so those ports from EA just were better on Sega, and it didn't really change until the very tail end of the life cycle when they became pretty much equals as far as those games went. And while EA Sports made good games for it, Sega's in-house brand made some pretty good stuff too. That's why I mentioned NFL Football 94. Their World Series Baseball collection of games was really good too. Uh, Had some incredible graphics for the time. I mean, just kind of blew you away. It looked very realistic. I liked World Series Baseball as well had a few different versions of that game. But it wasn't all just about sports games, because the Genesis had a lot of good platformers. I'm not a huge fighting game player. I'm not very good at them. But I did like Sega's version of Mortal Kombat. That was a big tipping point in the 90s, because when Mortal Kombat, this hyper-violent video game, was released for home consoles, Nintendo neutered it for the Super Nintendo. Instead of bleeding characters had sweat, and if you know anything about Mortal Kombat, after you beat a character, you have a chance to perform a fatality move, which kills the character. They're pretty gross. Probably shouldn't be things that 12-year-old kids could, should be doing, but, you know, you'll, you'll rip a guy's head out, or you'll rip a guy's heart out, or you'll incinerate a guy. The Sega Genesis version had all that blood intact. You had to use a code to get it, but it had all that stuff intact, whereas the Super Nintendo didn't. They tried to make things a little less violent because Nintendo was concerned about violent video games and didn't want that. They wanted to be a family-friendly platform, so they didn't want extreme violence in their games. Say, the Sega Genesis port, which while probably technically from a music and graphics standpoint is not as good as the Super Nintendo version because the Super Nintendo was a more powerful system, but the Genesis version outsold Super Nintendo. Probably, I won't say it lost Nintendo a lot of money, they definitely lost sales of that game for the system. And so by the time Mortal Kombat 2 rolled around, Nintendo changed their tune and they were fine with blood and guts and fatalities in their game. Their version of Mortal Kombat 2 
was superior to the Sega Genesis version. Well, the Genesis version was fine. It was good. I think the Super Nintendo version probably had better music, better graphics. Just kind of funny Nintendo took this stand as we're the family-friendly company, but then when Sega kicked their butt in sales, all of a sudden it's, well, you know, we'll put, we'll put blood back into the game. So you know where they really stand on that. A good side-scroller for the system was the X-Men game. Hard. Oh my gosh, was that hard. A game I've never beaten. I think my friends beat it, but I, I couldn't. I couldn't get past uh, the Mojo's World level. Uh, my goodness, it's a tough game, but it's fun. The, the character sprites are huge. Everybody looks good. You've got uh, Wolverine, Gambit, Cyclops, and Nightcrawler that you can play as. They all have different abilities, so Cyclops has his Optic Blast, and Wolverine has Healing Factor. Gambit throws exploding playing cards at people. Nightcrawler can teleport through objects. I usually played a Cyclops in that game because he had that ranged attack, and so you could play a little bit more conservatively and get through some of the levels with him. And it's one of the ones that I love for that system. I just can't get past certain levels because it is hard, hard, hard. I'm not much for hidden gems, but one I think that gets overlooked a lot on the Genesis is a game called General Chaos. The, the, the name fits. Just listen to this. This was a military strategy game where you play it as a blue or red faction and you're trying to take over a country. Cartoony violence made by Electronic Arts. The thing that was fun about General Chaos, you could play up to four players at the same time. So you could really play with your friends on the same team and it was a lot of fun. You had different classes of guys. You had the gunner, which was a, a guy with a machine gun and he could shoot a lot, but his gun would jam. You had a launcher which we always called this guy General Mortar because he had a bazooka. Basically, he'd fire missiles at people with his bazooka. And sometimes with that guy, you could get instant kills. You'd launch it, and then a player would just turn into a skeleton. And that was it. Can't call in a medic for that. You had guys that threw grenades. You did have places where you could take cover in the game, and obviously your machine gunner can't get to that guy, and your rocket guy, General Mortars, can't get to those guys. The grenade guy can throw his grenade over those obstacles. You had a flamethrower guy, which was probably the most annoying because you got to be up close to get him. But once you got into the range of this guy, he would just sit there and just flame you until you died, basically. And it was tough. I think like the mortar guy, that the flamethrower guy could also get an instant kill on occasion. They were sort of randomized. And then there was another guy who threw dynamite and... They weren't useless, but they were not great either. They didn't have the same range as the grenade throwers, although their dynamite did a lot of damage. It took, it was slow. It was a very slow, you know, he would kind of take his dynamite out, shuck it up, and then put his fingers in his ears, waiting for it to blow up. And it was short range, so it was easy to avoid his stuff. However, he could destroy things in the environment and, and also get an instant kill on occasion. But, I mean, we, we loved that game. My friends and I, we played a lot of General Chaos, and I, I think that's a game that a lot of people don't talk about for the Genesis. And final game I'll mention for the system, at least the ones that we had a great amount of affection for, and I really didn't, other than NHL 94, I really didn't get into the Sega CD, which is an entirely different episode in the 32X. Captain America and the Avengers. Excellent port of that arcade game for the Sega Genesis. My brother and I could, in our prime, we could beat that game without losing a life. 
either of us. I would play as Captain America. He would play as Iron Man. Captain America was the best character to have because especially there are a few shooter levels and his shield would come back to him after you fired it. So it just had this constant rapid fire loop to it while Iron Man had a slower rate of fire in those levels. We rarely played as Vision and we rarely played as Hawkeye because he had a super slow rate of fire and also because we always thought the announcer sounded like he had something caught in his throat when he announced Hawkeye's name. Avengers. And really looking back, it's not a tremendously long game, but even on the harder levels, we could get through that. We knew the patterns and we worked together so well on that game that we could we could beat the Red Skull and not lose a life, either of us, and we were pretty proud of that. And probably the biggest pain in the butt in that game was fighting crossbones. That that was a tough fight. If if we were to lose a life, it usually happened against crossbones because there was just a lot going on in that fight. I love all the cheesy voice work, the music's good in that game, and it's got some fun comic book panels. There are some things that the Super Nintendo version does better in presentation, but the Genesis version of this game plays so much better than the SNES version, and it's a classic, one of my favorites. So I, I mentioned that collection of 50 Sega Genesis or Sega Mega Drive games that's going to come out here in May for Xbox One, PS4, and Steam. Surprised it's not coming to the Switch. I bet a Nintendo version's got to be in the pipeline. I mean, the Switch is selling like hotcakes, and their games are doing really, really well. So I would imagine that they've got to get on there somehow, right? Sega says that these games will have some enhancements, like achievements. I don't know if that's achievements per game, or if that's just general achievements per the disc, or if it'll just be kind of like, you know, they'll have a few achievements per game. And they said they'll have some online multiplayer. I don't know how that's going to work. So I, I have always enjoyed the Sega Genesis. I like the fact that they're going to prey on some nostalgia here and release a collection of Sega Genesis games. I have a lot of these games either through emulation or because I actually own them. I don't know. You know, I, I loved the Genesis so much and I feel like I should support the system. So when that comes out in May, I'm going to be 50-50 on whether or not to get that. Since Christmas, I haven't played as many video games as I usually do. I've been trying to do some writing stuff. I started the podcast, and so my gaming has diminished a bit. I might have to pick this one up and play it. And, you know, you just want to support the brand because for a time, for a brief time, Sega was king of the 16-bit console market. They were the first major challenger Nintendo had and for a time, Sega Genesis outsold Super Nintendo, basically because of an aggressive marketing campaign. They priced the system aggressively, and Nintendo had become complacent, didn't think anybody would ever be able to challenge them. They were wrong. The Sega Master System was a failure in the U.S., although quite popular in Europe, but the Genesis did very well here in the U.S. for a time. And I think in the long run, Super Nintendo ended up selling more systems than the Genesis did. When people think back to the 16-bit era, they tend to think of the Super Nintendo and maybe not the Sega Genesis, just because Nintendo is so prevalent and Sega is just a software company now. And they've just been kind of treading water over the years, and they license their stuff out with these plug-and-play systems of dubious quality. So I hope that these are high-quality 
emulation ports of these Sega games and that they play like the originals and that Sonic has the speed from the originals. You know, Streets of Rage plays like it should play. I really want to support Sega. So what, what about you? Did you grow up with the Genesis? Did you grow up with the Super Nintendo? Did you grow up after that? Are you a, was your inaugural system a PlayStation? Do you remember the Intellivision? You know, just let me know. You can find me on Twitter, at Statomatty. That's at S-T-A-T-O-M-A-T-T-Y. Or you can send me an email, matt at mattadamswriter.com. Matt at mattadamswriter.com. Thanks for listening. Happy gaming.